Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Politics comes down to divisions of power. And the question is, who decides? My guest is Judge Jeffrey Sutton. He's the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. His new book is entitled, Who Decides? States as Laboratories of Constitutional Experimentation. Thanks for joining me, Judge Sutton. This is a follow-up to your first book, so tell us why you decided to write a sequel. Yes, the first book focused on individual rights, say the right to free speech, free exercise of religion, equal protection, the things we know the most about in the federal and state constitutions. The second book is focused on structure, and structure uh, to some may seem a little less interesting, uh, not quite as exotic as an individual right that protects me, for example. but the more you think about it, the more you come to appreciate that structure is far more important when it comes to a constitution than the individual rights protected there. A great way to illustrate that is you can have lots of individual rights in the constitution as the old Soviet Union did and not have any place to enforce them. So structure is what separates the different branches of government, the federal government from the states, and ultimately it's probably the best protection of liberty there is, um, or at least it's been shown to be the best protection of liberty in American history. So the idea was to talk about rights in this book, but also to put them in the context of the various ways in which our state and federal constitutions separate power and ultimately, if all goes well, do their best to balance power. So with so many major disputes or controversial issues these days, we hear people say, well, we'll see what the courts decide about this. Has judicial power grown so that it has an outsized role in our society compared to the other branches of government? Well, a way to think about that is that I don't think there's been a country in world history that has embraced judicially enforceable rights more than we Americans have. Part of it is the success of the courts. Take the Brown case, uh, which is such a singular moment in American history and in which the court rightly gets a lot of credit for bringing Jim Crow South to its heels. So I think one reason we embrace judicially enforceable rights in this country, whether at the federal or state level, is it's been successful. The reason to perhaps put a pause button on that is not so much that um, it's not a good idea to 
identify new judicially enforceable rights, but perhaps we've fallen into the danger of the peril of a single story, where the only source of those rights that we think about tends to be the U.S. Constitution, and the only protector of those rights tends to be the U.S. Supreme Court. That seems to me perilous. You know, if you were to look at the number of cases filed in the court system, it's, you know, it's 100, 200 to 1 are in the state courts. So most of the places where the rule of law exists or doesn't exist, you know, is in the state courts to start. And the, the second point is to not lose sight of the fact that we have this second set of protections uh, when we think our liberty or property rights have been put at risk. Uh, you can lose a case at the U.S. Supreme Court under the federal constitution and still have a right to convince a state court to rule that this state or local law violates an independent source of rights or state constitutions. So part of the story is that we do embrace judicially enforceable rights in America. There's just no doubt about it. But another part of the story is to remember that the U.S. Supreme Court is not the only guardian of our rights. And when it comes to every state and local law in this country, there are two sources of protection in the court system, not just one. So why do you think it is that we place such importance on what the Supreme Court rules? Well, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court, of course, has national authority. And if one is fortunate enough to win there, it means your victory applies across the country. That's especially true when it comes to a constitutional case where you convince the court to nationalize a position under the Constitution. That means you not only have a national victory with respect to that right, but it means that no one is allowed to vote on it or do anything that's different from the Supreme Court's decision. So there are lots of incentives to go to the federal court to seek relief. And if one has obtained relief, there are lots of incentives to keep that victory because it is pretty impressive to create a rule for 330 million people in 51 jurisdictions and to prohibit democracy or other litigation from being relevant to that particular issue. So I, I think that's perhaps one feature of what's going on. And you know, as I pointed out with the Brown case, it's a proud moment in American history, and it's, it's probably the case most Americans know about. So when they think of constitutional rights, it's understandable. They would think of the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Constitution. One reason I wrote these two books is to help with this education deficit. I think the last time we had a poll on this point, fewer than 50 percent of Americans knew their state even had a constitution, which to me is quite ironic since the federal constitutional rights that we embrace and care so deeply about all originated in state constitutions. The early state constitutions after 1776 were, of course, the source code for the eventual federal constitution in 1789, and I would say for every amendment after that. You talk about Chief Justice John Roberts. In his confirmation hearings, he compared the role of a judge to an umpire at a baseball game. And this has become famous already because there's been so much uh, hearkening back to it and criticizing it as way too basic. Do you think it would have been better not to make that comparison? Oh, I, I wish I'd thought of it during my confirmation <laughs> hearing. I, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, you know, confirmation hearings, as I can attest, I was only at the Court of Appeals level, but they're not easy, and you're trying to explain things in a way that are understandable both to the senators and Americans in general, particularly when it comes to a U.S. Supreme Court confirmation hearing. And I thought the analogy to baseball uh, was a good one, and particularly his line that nobody goes to a baseball game to watch the umpire. And so I think what he was identifying was 
the judicial ideal, and he was trying to present it in a way that was understandable to everybody. So I, I quite liked it. I, I appreciate the scholar, scholarly, um, well, I wouldn't call it critique, but scholars saying, well, is it possible that judges have a little more discretion than umpires? Um, you know, maybe so. I don't think he was disputing that. He was just trying to make the point that our job is not to make the rules. Our job is to just say whether, you know, one side wins or one side loses. The thing I think that is another way, though, if we want to stick with analogies in baseball, the thing that I think is difficult about judicial review, which is to say when the courts constitutionalize an area um, that people care deeply about, uh, what gets tricky is that at that point, there really aren't just two players in the game. There really are three players in the game. So Congress wants to do something. The president says you can't do it. And the court has issued decisions in the area. All three branches of government are now going to participate in that dispute. So the same is true with any case, any individual rights case. Once the court says the Constitution applies to an area, they are a player in the game and defining what that right means. And I think that's a problem that I think is just endemic in judicial review. Another way of putting it is we all embrace the idea of the courts being able to check the political branches because separation of powers is so central to American government from the beginning, whether it's the state or the federal constitutions. The trick, however, over time is that separation of powers doesn't lead to an imbalance of power. And the, the one thing that I think the framers of the Constitution would be surprised to see is how much authority the federal courts now have relative to the modest role they were perceived to have at the founding. And you know, one might be inclined to criticize federal judges like me for that. Um, I, I appreciate the point. But another possibility is to wonder if we, the American people, are the ones to blame. In other words, we seem to like it. We seem to like going to the federal courts to figure out whether the Constitution resolves this particular policy debate or that particular policy debate. And, and I wonder if we Americans should look in the mirror and say, is this really a sustainable system going forward that we put life-tenured federal judges, five of nine members of the U.S. Supreme Court in charge of some of the larger policy disputes in American government? That seems to me an idea worth thinking about because the odds are high if we stay down this road, you, you know, you probably win half the time and lose half the time. And I guess that's good the days you win. It's a little frustrating when you can't vote on something you care deeply about. And I sometimes wonder if we might do better to use our state courts uh, a little more. The stakes are a lot less high uh, when you constitutionalize an issue in Ohio, for example, as opposed to the whole country. The other benefit of looking to our state courts and state constitutions is experimentation is a, a virtue of federalism that I think everybody still embraces. In these polarized times, it's hard to find things in American government we can all agree about, but I think we still agree that when you're not sure what to do with a difficult policy problem, it's not a bad idea to follow Justice Brandeis's advice and let the, a brave state try this experiment, and if it works, let another state and eventually maybe many states follow it. And if it really works, if there's truly a winning insight, why at that point you can nationalize the insight. Now, Brandeis, of course, was referring to the state legislators and state legislatures as the sources of this experimentation. And one way to summarize who decides in, in 51 Imperfect Solutions is I'm simply suggesting that perhaps 
we should use our state courts as laboratories of experimentation when it comes to some of the more difficult constitutional debates that the country's facing. And if you think of the constitutional debates that seem to generate the most press attention that most Americans know about, they're ones that are about very generally worded guarantees. What processes do? When is speech free? When is a search unreasonable? These are terms that can generate uh, disagreement for sure and a lot of different perspectives. And they seem like the kind of areas where the Brandeis insight might also apply. Why not let state courts be the experimenters in chief, the first responders when there's a new policy problem that implicates individual liberty or property rights or equality concerns, and let the experimentation unfold. And sometimes that experimentation will lead to a a national ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court where we nationalize the constitutional right. And other times it might turn out that uh, this is a big, diverse country and there might be one or two or three reasonable ways to handle the matter. And we could allow some variation to account for a variety of circumstances. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
why do you think it is that litigants, when they're deciding to litigate about these rights, go right to the federal courts? Well, I think they would do what I did when I was in litigation, which is do what's the best by your client. And there's no client who wouldn't prefer a national victory. So, you know, whether it's a state, whether it's an individual, whether it's an interest group, everyone would prefer to see the right they care deeply about protected equally throughout the country. I appreciate as a, you know, as a former practicing lawyer with clients, um, it is the lawyer's job to really, it's a fiduciary duty to do the best by your client you can. And if the federal courts offer a way to nationalize a victory, well, I think it's quite understandable that they're doing that. Um, the thing I sometimes wonder is, you know, here I am a federal judge, and I sometimes think it might be useful for us from time to time to listen to those state cases, maybe put a pause button before we nationalize something. Quite often, some really terrific insights can come from the state courts. And, you know, if if the federal courts wait a little while sometimes before they identify these new national rights, they also lower the stakes of their decision, um, right? If, you know, 30 of 50 states have already recognized a right, uh, that means the Supreme Court decision only affects 20 states at that point. So that lowers the temperature of the ultimate decision. But, you know, there's another another way to think about this, which is that sometimes the U.S. Supreme Court puts up a stop sign. So most recently in the Rucho case from a few years ago, they said that the 14th Amendment does not cover claims of extreme partisan gerrymandering. There was a very close case. It's 5-4. The Chief Justice wrote the majority. Justice Kagan wrote powerful dissent. And it concerned a topic that I think to at one level every American agrees is troubling, that extreme partisan gerrymandering has not been good for the country. I don't think there's a single citizen out there that thinks we need more of it. So we all agree that it's something that is hurting democracy or our civil discourse. Well, once the U.S. Supreme Court puts up a stop sign in Rucho and says the 14th Amendment doesn't have a role to play here, those who have lost those cases, you know, they have two options. Option A, embrace unhappiness. And option B, go to the state courts. And it turns out in that area, people have successfully gone to state court. You have decisions by the Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida court systems that have recognized claims in that exact area under their state constitutions. And there's also the recourse of going to the state legislature for a compromise, and in some cases going to amendments to state constitutions to try to limit extreme partisan gerrymandering. So I see state constitutions as having two uh, roles here. One, they're very good news for the individual that loses at the U.S. Supreme Court when it comes to challenging a state or local law. It gives you a a second shot, a second chance at victory. And then I, I see them as potentially really helpful when it comes to the very difficult job U.S. Supreme Court justices have in identifying new federal constitutional rights. Uh, particularly, you know, unenumerated rights or substantive due process where there's just not a lot to go on in the U.S. Constitution. And the states can be very uh, helpful resources when it comes to the meaning of these guarantees because they all originated there in the state constitutions. And they can be helpful uh, for those justices that account for shifting norms in society. 
you, you have to look for evidence of those shifting norms outside the judge. You have to look for it out in society, society, some objective place. And state legislatures, state courts, and state constitutions can be really terrific evidence of shifting norms in society. So do you think a federal judge should should be looking more or asking advice from a state Supreme Court? Yeah, so I think one of the beauties of um, paying attention to state courts and state constitutions is that it's a neutral principle and it helps everybody. So I tend to lean towards the um, textualist, originalist approach to interpretation. And the reason state constitutions could be helpful to me is they're, of course, the source code for the federal guarantee because all of our original rights grew out of state constitutions. And so a state court decision could be really helpful to me in understanding what the federal guarantee means. Now, some judges and justices are pragmatic. Um, When they get a close case, they want to make sure that their interpretation um, is not going to make things worse, that ideally it'll make things better. Well, for the pragmatic federal judge or justice, the state court decisions can be hugely helpful because they can illustrate whether this new interpretation helps solve a problem or, God forbid, made it worse. For the living constitutionalists, for those judges and justices that in some settings will account for shifting norms in American society, the state court decisions can be really valuable because they can show that, indeed, a lot of Americans now think this right or that right is quite consequential. Um, you know, the marriage equality story illustrates this last point. Um, in Justice Kennedy's opinion in Obergefell, he pointed out that back in 1971 or 72, the U.S. Supreme Court had rejected a marriage equality claim in the context of a 14th Amendment dispute coming out of the state of Minnesota. And he pointed out since the early 70s, um, state courts uh, had recognized um, a right to marriage equality under their state constitution. State legislatures had gotten rid of the bans on um, gay marriage, and that some state constitutions had even been amended to that effect. And he pointed out that this dialogue informed um, the meaning of due process and equal protection at the federal level. So one of the things I really enjoy about state constitutions is they're valuable to everybody. They're valuable to those who have lost at the U.S. Supreme Court. They're valuable to those who are trying to win at the U.S. Supreme Court, and they're valuable to liberals and conservatives and every method of constitutional interpretation there's ever been. As you know, the public approval of the Supreme Court is at its lowest in modern times. And you talk in your book about you know the confirmation of Judge Bork and, and how that perhaps started the partisanship of the selection process. Is there any way at this point to take partisanship out of judicial selection? Well, one of the chapters of Who Decides takes on the story of judicial selection methods. And, you know, when the state and federal constitutions were being put together, um, no one thought of electing judges or justices. It was always a selection process that involved uh, the legislative branch or the 
executive branch. And over time, um, 90% of the state court judges are now elected in some way or another, whether through retention or partisan or nonpartisan elections. So we have a world where the state court system has seen its selection process um, evolve in much more democratic ways. And, you know, those elections, even when they're nonpartisan, still involve fundraising and certainly what look to be political components to them. Um, you know, I, I think it's a I, I think it's a difficult problem. Um, one illustration of the problem is that, you know, by too many accounts to deny the 2016 presidential election turned on a sufficient number of Americans choosing a vote for president of the United States as a proxy to fill one seat in a nine-member court. Um, that suggests the American people have become very engaged and interested in who is on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, whatever the, the reasons for that development, how, however it is we got to this point, I think we can all agree that's probably not the system that the founders designed, and we probably all can agree that's not healthy for the federal courts. I went through the process roughly 20 years ago and came out of it with a 52-41 vote for a lowly seat of, on the Court of Appeals. And my boss, uh, Justice Scalia, back in um, the mid-1980s, was confirmed 98-0 to zero to obviously a far more important job. Um, so that does suggest things have changed. It, what's very difficult um, about this problem is um, what the exit strategy is, uh, because you have, I mean, if you think of some of the most intense fights we have at the court, um, they're actually not about new rights, they're about preserving old ones. And that's really complicated. People get used to having a right protected by the court as opposed to their state court or their state legislature or Congress. And um, that's a that's a difficult problem to extract yourself from. And um, I personally think we are do have an imbalance of power situation at this point, and shrinking the footprint of the federal courts is not something that's easy to do when it's very large and a lot of people care deeply about some of the rights that are covered by that footprint. It's very difficult to turn things around because no one wants to give up power, and the partisanship gets worse all the time. Well, one way to think about it is, uh, I'll try this on you, do this thought experiment where you're, you, you get people together and if someone is progressive, they need to find a conservative friend. And by the way, if they don't have one, it's time to get <laughs> one. Uh, we Americans could do better on that front. And then the same for the conservative. The conservative should find a progressive friend and if they don't have one, time to get one. And you, the two of them sit down and they each, each get to identify the constitutional rulings of the U.S. Supreme Court, let's say the last 70 years, and they each get to pick five that they don't care for. Um, and so, you, you know, what ends up happening with this thought experiment is the progressive, oh, a pro progressive might not care, let's say, for Citizens United or Heller might be two examples. And let's say the conservative might not care for, say, Casey or a criminal procedure case. But anyway, they each get to pick five. And I ask audiences this all the time and my law students. Um, would you take the trade? In other words, you have to give up 
five constitutional rulings that you probably care for, mm-hmm. but in return you get rid of five you don't care for, and the upshot is you take ten controversial rulings and you return them all to democracy or state courts. So you get you know you get second, third, and fourth chances to win, mm-hmm. but you've lost your national victory at the U.S. Supreme Court, but in return for getting rid of a national defeat uh, or five of them. And to my surprise. Most students and most lawyers, most Americans, when I present this offer, they won't take the trade. <laughs> um, and I, I think I think what's going on is they, in some cases, really prize the victory, so it's very hard for them to give up the victory. Um, there's probably a slightly American component of this, which is, well, we're going to win in the end anyway, uh, which I guess they must mean capture control of the U.S. Supreme Court and get keep their five and get five more victories. Um, but they, they need to remember they're going against another American, and the odds are pretty high it's going to be 50-50 going forward. They'll win half, they'll lose half, and they won't get to vote on any of them. You wonder if this isn't a problem for American citizens more than it is a problem for American judges. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Judge Sutton. That's Judge Jeffrey Sutton, the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. His new book is entitled, Who Decides? States as Laboratories of Constitutional Experimentation. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.